Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the Podmetic, and I'm pretty excited today. We've got a great topic for you, and I can't wait to get into it. But as you all will know by now, if you've been listening to any length of time of this show, you know that we can't do anything without Sam Bradley because she is the grease that keeps the machinery running around here. Hey, Sam. Hey, Jamie. I love being grease, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good thing. Well, our Mets aren't on tonight, but, you know, we're all in different parts of the country and have all had our share of weird weather. In fact, we weren't even sure we'd get Dr. Joe on tonight because he had lost power until yesterday. So what's going on with that, Joe? Uh, Well, hi, Slippery Sam. Uh, I am uh, definitely glad to be on. Yeah, we had a pretty uh, nasty local straight line wind thunderstorm event that uh, went through the Memphis area uh, two, three days ago now and uh, did a surprising amount of damage, uh, including telephone poles and telephone lines, uh, electrical lines now and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, I literally got power back after about uh, three and a half days uh, last night, and thank goodness the air conditioning works because it's pushing 100 degrees with 300% humidity, and it is miserable outside. Oh, so do you have one of those, um, what do you call them, the um, backup generator? Uh, I had a small one uh, that I was able to keep the the freezer and the refrigerator operating and keep our batteries charged for phones and that kind of stuff, but not enough to run the whole house. Oh, miserable. 300% humidity? I didn't think that was possible. It's not, but, you know, it is here. (laughs) It feels like it. (laughs) How, How are the dogs holding up outside? Oh, yeah. Uh, they have been in the lake a lot, uh, and so I've had very wet, nasty dogs all week, um, <laughs> which has not helped any. <laughs> well, wet, nasty, and happy. So Yes, they oh, do love being in the water when it's hot. Not hyperthermic. So, Jamie, you, it's your first day without rain for a while, huh? Yeah, I think some of those storms that blew through the uh, southeast and s- mid-south uh, came up our way here in the mid-Atlantic, and we had some uh, weekend of pretty severe storms rolling through. Um, we didn't lose power, but a couple areas around us did, and um, it was it was um, much needed rain. Though it's been drought conditions here for over a month, and um, very dry spring for th- this area. So we were happy to see the rain, and uh, having four or five days of of rain was was pretty solid. So we'll take it. Um, and uh, move on into the holiday weekend. So that's what we're looking forward to. Yep. And they uh, they had that derecho go through. And uh, I was looking at some of the pictures. Man, it downed a bunch of trees. So they're going to have fun cleaning that up all over the place. And apparently one of the things that makes the derecho, derecho is it's like 400 miles plus area that it goes through. I don't know. Did you get some of that, Joe, or was yours a different system? Uh, It may have been part of the same thing. Uh, It was certainly a whole line of pretty significant storms that passed through the the Midwest and uh, all across the Southeast. So what are you looking at next week, Jamie? Is it going to... Well, right now we're we're dealing with poor air quality because of the smoke. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, I know folks on the West Coast are, you know, 
kind of waving their hands in the air and going, oh, please. But um, <laughs> we're not used to it. I mean, you know, it's what you're used to. It's what your area is expecting. And we just don't get um, wildfire smoke causing it to be unsafe to be outside. I mean, it, you know, the state sent a message out this morning the, that we're pretty much said anyone that had to be outside for an extended period of time should wear their N95 masks and uh, try to be prepared to not be outside if you can at all. And uh, so I'm sure it was rough on the folks. I know they're, they're paving the road, the main road near our house, and I'm sure it was no fun for them to be outside all day. So um, pretty, pretty rough conditions for the people that have to, to do that work outside. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I remember, I think it was two years ago, we had that local fire that took out a whole bunch of residents up in the mountains. And, man, it was all coming down here. So we, I know what that experience is like. Well, around here, the rain's kind of uh, settled down a bit, but it's getting hot. And uh, we have, we're under a tornado watch as we speak. So I'm staring out the window as it's getting darker skies and uh we'll see what happens there so if i you find me in memphis or or maryland then uh you'll know that (laughs) or kansas um yeah that's what happened but anyway we're going to move on to something more interesting uh dr joe's got a clinical topic for us and we're going to talk about heads up cpr and joe i'm not even going to hit you with a bunch of questions yet uh, I'm just going to let you run with what is it, where did it come from, what kind of research has been done on it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, thanks, Sam. Uh, so part of the reason that this uh, topic <clears throat> came came up tonight, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, uh, was an article in the New York Times uh, that uh, briefly summarized the the history of Heads Up CPR and uh, the clinical findings that we're now beginning to see. Uh, so just to bring everybody up to speed, uh, the, the idea um, is, ha- has been to um, see if we can't find ways to improve the quality of perfusion of the brain and the heart during CPR, which has notoriously been quite bad. And I've been involved in a lot of that research going back for a number of years now with some pretty amazing people um, uh, who have uh, invented some technologies to take advantage of the physiology as we currently understand it. And we're really beginning to see the clinical impacts of that research and technology. So uh, to start at the beginning, um, the part of the problem with CPR is that we're, we're pretty good at pushing blood out of the chest and into the brain and other parts of the body, but I'm just going to talk about the brain because that's the main part we're concerned about. And we have always struggled with the ability to get blood to return to the heart to refill it and particularly to empty out the brain of uh, venous blood, which has already had the oxygen consumed and and is now full of carbon dioxide and other toxins that need to be moved out of the brain. So 
the uh, uh, the initial impetus uh, behind some of this research came from a uh, a patient that a colleague of mine named Keith Lurie, who's a cardiologist in uh, uh, Minnesota, uh, took care of, and it was a gentleman who had a cardiac arrest and whose family members resuscitated him, provided CPR with a toilet plunger. Uh, in which they uh, uh, sort of created a, a bellows effect out of the chest. And that led to uh, <laughs> some thought experiments about what was going on there because the guy did pretty well. Uh, and a realization that um, we, we don't have a, we did not have a good way to take advantage of the, the bellows effect of the chest. And the real issue there is the, the lack of ability to create vacuum or negative pressure inside the chest. So if you think about how we function normally, we, we survive, we're alive because our body creates a vacuum inside our chest cavity every time we expand our chest by uh, tightening the diaphragm and having the diaphragm go down and expanding the, the chest cavity itself. That creates a small amount of vacuum inside the chest, and that's why air flows in uh, and why we breathe. Um, in cardiac arrest, we frequently, uh, well, we always turn that physiology on its head, and we, we use positive pressure. We force air into the chest uh, to, to ventilate us, and we compress the chest to create pressure inside the chest to push the blood out. So the, the idea here is how can we create more pressure variations so that we can get better flow. And so to, to think about this in a very simplistic manner, um, think about what happens when you press on the chest and you raise the pressure inside the chest. The pressure in the chest goes up. The pressure in the rest of the body is zero, just as a reference number. Uh, and so fluid under high pressure always flows to a lower pressure area. That's how fire hoses work and <laughs> the garden hose works and everything else. So when there's high pressure inside the chest, that pushes blood out and pushes it to the low pressure areas of the body. When you come off the chest or allow the chest to recoil under standard CPR, the pressure in the chest goes back to zero because that's the baseline. And then at that point, there's no pressure differential between the brain and the chest. And so you get very little flow of blood. Um, the realization that the need to create vacuum or negative pressure inside the chest to create that pressure difference between the brain and other parts of the body and the chest cavity led to the uh, invention of the impedance threshold device, the ITD, 
colloquially known as the rescue pod. And what the rescue pod does is in patients who have been, uh, had their airway managed during CPR or with a bag valve mask with a good seal, when the chest recoils, the ITD does not allow air to flow in until a certain amount of vacuum has been created inside the chest. The ITD-16 creates minus 16 centimeters of water of vacuum inside the chest. And so the, the difference now is I press on the chest and the pressure goes up to 40 inside the chest. It's zero in the head. I have a pressure differential, so blood flows out uh, from the chest to the head. I let off on the chest, and now the pressure goes, instead of just to zero, it goes to minus 16 inside the chest, and it's zero in the head, and therefore I have a pressure differential, and I get better flow from the head back to the chest. So that enhances the amount of blood flowing into the heart, which fills the heart better and gives you more to pump out the next time you press. And that also helps to pull venous blood out of the head uh, to uh, reduce the pressure inside the head uh, and, and make room for fresh arterial blood to flow in. So that's, that's what the ITD does. You can enhance that effect by utilizing a device that actively helps the chest recoil uh, or return to normal. Um, the, uh, uh, and that is uh, using a device that literally has a suction cup on it, thus the toilet plunger, that helps to lift the chest uh, more aggressively than just by passive motion alone. And that creates even more vacuum inside the chest and therefore enhances the uh, pressure differential between the brain and the chest and improves flow. So um, those two things in combination result in much better flow through the brain, much better perfusion pressure in the brain and the heart. Uh, and that perfusion pressure is the, the driver of blood flow through those tissues. So you have to have blood flow to obviously have oxygen exchange and CO2 exchange and all that kind of stuff. That making sense so far? I'll stop for a second, just to make sure nobody has any questions. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> this all came from a toilet plunger. That's, that's amazing. We have Kyle here, too, who loves your clinical episodes. Hi, Kyle. Glad to have you, buddy. Howdy, any howdy. Questions? Well, I, I, I'm curious, Joe, you know, um, when uh, you think about this, um, and this was tested uh, with a device that, uh, were, were they using manual CPR with a device in, in hand that drew the chest out with the suction cup, or were they using a mechanical device to, to um, manage the CPR? Uh, so I'll talk about that in just a sec, Jamie, because it, it's a little bit of both. Okay. 
uh, and, and I'll, I'll address that uh, in just a sec. That's great. Uh, Kyle, you just jumped on, so I don't know much, how much you heard, but any thoughts or questions so far? Uh, I've definitely got questions about uh, manual versus the uh, automatic devices. Um, that's that's a, a pretty unique one, right, to think about. And then also uh, just curious about um, thoughts on how we might position these patients in uh, non-hospital settings, so in the pre-arrival environment, to accomplish uh, the position that is required to achieve this better outcome. There you go, Joe. All right, perfect. Well, that's a good setup. So, so we'll we'll sort of pick the story back up with the uh, active compression decompression CPR device. So that is a handheld device that utilizes a suction cup on the chest, and you push down and you pull up. You don't just relax. You actively lift up the chest. And that's called active, decom uh, active compression decompression CPR. Uh, and when you do that in conjunction with the impedance threshold device, you get substantially better uh, blood flow, uh, again, through the brain, since that's the main thing we're worried about, but also through the heart. So those things both help a lot uh, in that they create higher blood pressure and better blood flow. So the, the next step in the evolution of Heads Up CPR was a, a recognition that we are still better at the push, the compression side of CPR, than we are the pull, the decompression side, and, and getting blood to return to the chest and, and come out of the head. And so through uh, a series of uh, experiments, um, we learned that if you gradually elevated the chest and the head over a few minutes and to a certain endpoint, gravity would actually help drain blood out of the head uh, quite effectively. Now, the challenge to that is that you have to be doing very good quality CPR because now you're pumping blood uphill. Uh, but what we have noted from the active compression, decompression CPR and mechanical CPR with an ITD is that we're easily able to overcome the uphill drive, as it were, and the enhancement in blood flow from the brain back to the chest is significantly enhanced and ultimately results in even better cerebral and coronary perfusion pressures, those pressures that are driving flow through those organs. So the, the activity there is important in that you can, uh, yeah, you have to be doing very good quality CPR to create enough pressure to drive blood uphill. You have to be careful and follow the rules, the, the optimization uh, rules uh, on 
how quickly you raise the head and chest, how high you raise the head and chest so that you don't lose the pressure head in the process. Uh, so uh, my friend Keith Lurie uh, created a device that helps us to take care of timing and elevation and speed to endpoint uh, so that we don't have to try to do that on our own while we're taking care of a million other things. Um, and so that device is called the Eligard, and it is a patient positioning system that is built to cradle the patient's head and upper chest. It has a, 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 a an attachment for a mechanical CPR device, uh, and you obviously use the ITD with it. And those three tools together result in uh, significant improvements in, uh, in animal studies of neurologically intact survival, significant improvements in CPR hemodynamics in animal studies, in human cadaver studies, um, which imply that things should be better, uh, and has led now to uh, implementation of heads-up CPR in a number of communities uh, around the country in sort of a pilot mode uh, and, and, you know, an early adopter mode. I've been uh, lucky enough to have two of my uh, EMS services uh, utilizing heads-up CPR, one for a couple of years now, the other for just under a year. Um, and we've noted about a fourfold increase in neurologically intact survivors uh, from all causes of cardiac arrest, not trauma, but all medical causes of cardiac arrest. Other sites in the country have noted similar improvements uh, in, in their cardiac arrest stuff as well. So let me stop right there again, and let's let's address any questions that are popping up. That's amazing, Jamie. Yeah, Joe. You well, I read the article that you gave us last week uh, on the episode, and I'll link to it in this week's episode as well. That the Medscape article. One of the things that really caught my eye right away was that these um, this CPR approach seemed to have po more positive outcomes for non-shockable cardiac arrest presentations, as well as shockable rhythms, which, you know, historically till now, a non-shockable rhythm was not, not a good outcome at all, even if we were to get there quickly and start CPR right away. What is the reason that there's a difference that this, that non-shockable um, rhythms are having positive outcomes now when they weren't before? Well, I, I think your first couple of statements really said it all. Uh, we, we have indeed noted that we, we get better outcomes in shockable rhythms, uh, but we also are seeing, seeing substantially better outcomes in non-shockable rhythms. I think the reason that the non-shockable rhythms appears to be more impressive is because the the baseline numbers are pretty much zero. 
for those rhythms. We almost never got any of those patients back. And we certainly had a very small number of them who survived neurologically intact at the end of that process. Um, and so the, you know, the, the chances of a neurologically intact survival from VFib or VTAC uh, are uh, much better than they were for asystole, PEA, and others that are uh, sort of in the non-shockable rhythm uh, approach. Does that answer your question, Jamie? It does. I just I just wondered because the article really made a big deal out of the um, non-shockable presentations having a much better chance of survival. But I guess better than zero is is any increase is better. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, it, you're basically right, Jamie. It it it, it is a, uh, a profound increase in uh, neurologically intact survivals in a group that we almost never saw neurologically intact survival before. Uh, so it, it, I look at that as, um, unfortunately, the, the shockable rhythms are the vast minority of cardiac arrest patients uh, compared to the non-shockables because that's, that's most of what we take care of. And so to finally have a tool that literally gives us uh, uh, and the patient a much better opportunity for survival than they ever had before is is a pretty profound uh, change. Well, for those of us that are getting older, we appreciate <laughs> that this is getting easier. And I know Mr. Kyle is anxious to start using this in the field, but I, on the downside, I saw an article um, out of GEMS that, that kind of criticize the idea that this might be ready for prime time in, in uh, pre-hospital care, but I'm not sensing that, You're, but you are doing pilots, right? Because he didn't feel there was enough research going on with human patients, but it sounds like there is. Yeah, that, so there, there are a number of sites around the country that are uh, involved in that. Uh, Kyle's point is, is certainly legitimate. The, the issue with this, and I think that the, where the care needs to be taken is it's, it's not quite as simple as it sounds. And by that, I mean, if you don't do high quality CPR, if you don't use the ITD, if you are not at least using mechanical CPR, and if you are not elevating the head and chest at the right speed to the right final heights, you may actually make things worse. So manual CPR, and I mean manual using your hands, even with an ITD, does not appear to be adequate CPR to take advantage of the heads-up phenomena that we've noted. You simply cannot create enough flow with just using your hands. Uh, you, need, uh, you need help. You need the, the consistency of mechanical CPR, and you need the additional 
kick that you get from the ITD in order to take advantage of the gravity assistance of heads up CPR. Kyle? Yeah, Joe, you, you really harp on the uh, doing quality compressions and providing quality compressions to these patients. And I know that historically, right, through the manual CPR, right, uh, the rule of thumb is about every two minutes will rotate uh, compressors, right, because of the fatigue that sets in even with very, uh, very, very, you know, strong athletic and seasoned responders. Uh, have have you seen uh, either through your research or your experience on this with your services, a difference in the time it takes for a provider to fatigue and start providing ineffective compressions uh, using a like that active compression decompression device as opposed to a, our traditional manual CPR method without any other devices. So great question, Kyle. Uh, I, I have had one service that has been doing the the handheld active compression decompression CPR for a couple of years. Um, it is a uh, it, it's a different set of muscles. It's a little bit different rhythm. Uh, the feedback from the device is immediate in that you know right away when you are not pushing or pulling as strongly as you need to be. And so uh, I think it it works in a couple of ways in that the the feedback from the device tells the the person doing CPR that they're getting tired because they're not meeting the parameters they need to meet. And you are, in essence, going from a 50% duty cycle, you press and relax, to 100% duty cycle, you push and you pull and you push and you pull. Um, it, it, you can do that for a couple of minutes pretty well, uh, just because the, the uh, once you use the device for a while, you sort of figure out the, a different set of muscles to use. It's much more about sort of rocking your, your hips and, the, and pelvis and that kind of stuff than it is actually using your arms, uh, which do fatigue much more quickly. So once you kind of get the mechanics down of the handheld ACDC device, you can do it pretty well for a couple of minutes, but there is no question in all forms of CPR that the need to change compressors frequently is of great value. That's, that's in my opinion, where mechanical CPR devices uh, are, uh, are, are better. And, and I use that word in quotes. They don't do better CPR than people do. As long as people do it exactly right, and that's where they win, because people can't do perfect CPR for very long without getting tired, et cetera, and the machine doesn't get tired. So the advantage of mechanical CPR is that they're not better CPR, they're just more consistent CPR, and that's better. So, Joe, when I left EMS Yados many years ago, um, it, the push was to do as much of the cardiac workup as you could, say, in the patient's home or wherever the patient happened to be, to see what you can get back. Because, as Kyle knows, once they get in the back of an ambulance, you don't have a whole team of people there 
uh, and the team concept was a big thing, but you don't have that many people back there to change out CPR. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I, I think that that advice still holds. There, It, it, it is clear that uh, early aggressive intervention on scene is better. It is very difficult to do quality CPR in the back of a moving vehicle. It's dangerous for the providers, uh, and it's fairly ineffective in general. And the longer you sort of wait the uh, uh, to do high quality CPR, the less chance you have of survival. So your best chance of survival is right up front. As soon as help gets there and gets going, uh, that's your best chance. So uh, the approach is still to be aggressive early on, to stay on scene and uh, provide those interventions uh, before you choose to take the patient to the hospital. Quite honestly, there's not many additional things that a hospital can supply in a patient who's actively in cardiac arrest, except in a few circumstances where they can uh, perhaps use ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, putting people on a bypass pump, which does not occur very often and takes an awful lot of infrastructure to get done, or uh, the possibility of an emergent cardiac calf uh, in folks who are um, in refractory arrhythmias that uh, have led to their cardiac arrest. Uh, beyond that, the, uh, uh, the hospital does not have an awful lot of additional uh, uh, input and, and capabilities that EMS does not already possess uh, in the field. Uh, the other piece of this is it it is now pretty clear that active, I'm sorry, heads up CPR uh, or neuroprotective CPR, as it's being called, is most advantageous when it is done up front early on, and it is a BLS intervention. So the best services. Uh, the, the, the services with the best cardiac arrest outcomes currently utilizing uh, heads-up CPR, neuroprotective CPR, are sending the uh, mechanical CPR, the ITD, and the elevation device out with the BLS crews. It is not on a supervisor vehicle coming along later. It goes out with as the first crew, uh, even if there's only two people. Um, and with some practice, they can get the entire package on those patients within two minutes. Uh, mechanical CPR is underway, uh, and they can manage the other things that need to be taken care of while high-quality CPR is being done. Uh, and actually, that is where we see the biggest bang for the buck. Jamie? And that leads me right into my question, Joe, which is uh, you have two systems that are using this process right now. Uh, what are your thoughts as a medical director looking at uh, a system that is adding this process into their CPR protocols? Uh, what are we looking at with with regard to additional training? It, 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 it's a completely different set of procedures, it sounds like. Uh, and and some new skills to learn. 
Uh, it is. None of these uh, uh, skills are difficult to learn. Uh, there is a need for choreography and training so that you do not uh, generate significant pauses in high-quality CPR while you are getting these adjuncts in place. So you need to practice that a little bit. Um, there's nothing uh, that a basic uh, EMT cannot do in, in elevated uh, or heads-up CPR. Um, none of those procedures require any significant advanced training, et cetera. So it, 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 it does change things a little bit, but at the same time, it, it pushes cardiac arrest very much to a, a BLS level of care. Uh, and so when the advanced level provider gets there, uh, the administration of drugs and, and electricity and all the other stuff that we're going to be doing are, are much more likely to be effective because we have already uh, begun to reperfuse that patient and prolonged their uh, window where those interactions are most likely to be of value. So I have a question for Kyle. How could any of this translate to a ski hill? <laughs> And I know you've been in that situation, but do you think these tools would be available? Because I know you could put a team together if you had to, to manage a cardiac arrest on the hill. But um, would you have all those tools that are necessary? Well, Sam, we're really fortunate within our uh, system here within Pitkin County and the greater Roaring Fork Valley here where Aspen's located and uh, particularly on mountain uh, within the resorts. Um, we regularly, uh, we refresh every fall. It's a week-long refresher. Uh, and one of the scenarios that we always run through is the, the team approach to a cardiac arrest event. And it's one that we refresh throughout the season as well. As far as the tools go, uh, we're really fortunate to have uh, many many uh, advanced tools at our disposal. We're actually, uh, we just upgraded our cardiac monitors to some new Zoles last season um, that actually within the CPR pads, we have a, a device that provides that active feedback on the quality and rate of compressions like Dr. Joe was talking about. And uh, we're also possibly looking at uh, rolling out, I know we tested them last season, uh, the uh, the brand that we tested was the Lucas uh, mechanical compression device. And so that's something they're looking to roll out across all four mountains. I know the first two ambulances with most services in our valley have them as well. So even if we're doing manual CPR on the way down, uh, probably positioning the patient head uphill, uh, perhaps to sort of uh, implement this in, in the field on a, on a toboggan on snow as you're transporting that person down. Uh, once they arrive at the ambulance, if we don't have that device available, that uh, that first due ambulance crew likely would. Yeah, Lucas works really well. That's what we used in the field. Any final thoughts, Joe? We're actually running over, but this has been too interesting to stop. <laughs> well, let, let me throw out a couple of things on the Lucas device just to clarify a couple of things. The, the, the Lucas device, um, the, the latest version, the 3.1 version, has a very small amount of lift to it, like one centimeter of lift, uh, which is not a lot. It is not as much lift as is generated with the active compression, decompression, uh, handheld device. 
Um, I, I think there are devices under development that would lift the chest even further, creating more vacuum inside the chest and therefore enhancing uh, blood flow and all that sort of stuff. So uh, the other thing that is important is before the head and chest are elevated, you need to quote unquote prime the pump for about two minutes uh, with the patient supine with high quality CPR uh, before you begin the gradual elevation of the head. So Kyle, for, for your situation, uh, as you're getting that patient situated on a, a, a sled, et cetera, uh, the activation of good quality CPR before you begin heading downhill for a couple of minutes uh, is uh, likely to benefit them substantially. Wow, good to know. So, Jamie, I hate to even stop this because it's such good information, but, you know, as usual, Joe has a lot of good educational information for us. This is all new to me. It's fantastic. And Joe, I just before we wrap up, um, is there any particular um, place that people can find out more about this besides the Medscape article that we talked about? Uh, I, I think um, you certainly can uh, take a look at the Eligard, E-L-E-G-A-R-D, Eligard website uh, that talks about the Heads Up device. Uh, I don't have any stake in that company, but uh, uh, I've been closely associated with a lot of the research that's gone into the development of those products. Um, and uh, there are a large number of scientific articles out now regarding Heads Up CPR that are available through Google Scholar and others if you want to read the, the science behind a lot of those. Uh, so there, there's definitely places like that that folks can uh, can begin to learn about it. Sorry, I muted myself. I pulled a Joe. Um, so <laughs> that's, um, and it looks like that's uh, found at elevatedcpr.com, uh, the Eligard system. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes um, so that people can follow up on that. And um, Joe, thanks. This has been fascinating. Um, not being in the clinical environment like I used to be, uh, I'm, I'm really going to be hitting up our local uh fire department next time I'm at a meeting to uh, find out what they're doing um, here in the state of Maryland about this, um, because I haven't been staying up up to date like I used to um, when I was act actively in the clinical environment. So pretty exciting stuff. Um, where can um, find, folks find out more about what you and Paragon Medical Education Group do? Because I know you are involved in so many different things, um, involved in tr all sorts of training and, and um, educational e evolutions. Uh, well, we and we do actually sort of incorporate some of this physiology in many of our labs to uh, help folks better understand uh, how CPR works and the, the, the do's and don'ts to improve the quality of your CPR. So uh, that's part of our, uh, uh, our, our teaching that we do on a routine basis. So folks can find us at uh, Paragon Medical Education Group on the web or uh, uh, the same on Facebook, or they can always reach out to us through the Disaster Podcast. Excellent. Kyle, where can folks find you? Well, Jamie, folks can find me on all the major social media platforms under the handle WX Kyle Nelson. Sam? 
As Kyle said, you can find me in the same places under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11 and in our wonderful community Facebook group. Jamie? And you can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations, so please look me up there. And always look for me over at the Disaster Podcast Facebook group and at DisasterPodcast.com. And I will always remind you, you can subscribe to the show over at DisasterPodcast.com. So uh, check out the links to do so right below the audio player on any of the episode pages. And uh, that's with any mobile device or even by email if you want. So please make sure you follow the show and be here for the next episode, which we will have out for you very soon. Sam? Uh, I'm just gobsmacked by everything Joe knows. And, and he's such on, he's right on the cutting edge of anything involving CPR, which we appreciate. Um, so all I have to say about this is, you know, Jamie, you and I have been out of the field for a while, so it's, it's fortunate that we're able to hear from Joe what's really going on out there that's going to make CPR a lot better and, and bring people home more neurologically intact. So all I can say about this is stay up with what's going on out there, people.